So if God's word, that we were told that God's word is very offensive, we're told that the gospel is offensive. So if God's word is so offensive, why should we desire it? Psalm 111, 2 through 4 says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. I hope you've taken on the challenge. I pray that you will. I'm trying to, trying to kind of jab you, jab you with this uh, praying through Psalms, uh, reading through Psalms, praying through Psalms. Five books a day knocks it out in a month. Five books a day in the next month knocks it out in another month. Keep reading it. Keep reading it. It's all about God. It's all about doctrine. It's all about peace in troubled times. It's all about being pursued by the wicked of the world, yet finding faith and hope and security in Christ. It's all of those things, and it's, a, it's great power in that book. I try to read through Psalms. I mean, I try to read through the whole Bible every year, and, um, or maybe once a year, if not twice a year. And whenever I hit Psalms, I got to slow down because every time I hit it, I'm reminded that, again of how much encouragement is there. And if we ever had a time for a need of encouragement, now's the time. And so read through the Psalms, read through the Psalms. One of the most quoted Psalms in Isaiah, one of the most, two of the most quoted books in the New Testament by Christ and by all those that write the New Testament books. And you'll find references, and we're going to talk about one today, but you'll find references about all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament. We'll find references about the coming Christ and everything else. It's all in there. Read through the Psalms, five a day. You get to Psalm 119, read extra the day before and the day after, because that's a slow one. Spend a whole day on that one. That's a good one. All right. Well, if you've read Matthew before, you'll come across, across this word, offend. I was reading in Matthew here a while back, and, and the two words that really stuck out to me in there was offend and treasure. That word treasure is in Matthew a lot too, but the word offend is in there uh, quite often. And so I hope to be as offensive as possible this morning. So let's turn to Matthew 13, 41 and see how well I can do. Jesus tells us that to be a believer in Jesus Christ will cause offense between believers and the world, between believers and each other, and between even fathers and sons, which is tragic. And I truly, I don't try to be offensive. It just comes naturally. It's just who I am. If you know me, this is what I am. So thank you for the amens, brother. God bless you. <laughs> so I got, our, I got our, our message this morning broken up into three parts. The unclean, the clean, and the stay clean. So we got three big ideas. I can't really break it down any smaller than that. I hope that it's easy to understand. Uh, I believe it's the word that God has for us today. Um, if you need more input or you need more explanation, you can come see me after. We'll try to work out any things you might have had questions on. But go to Matthew 13, 41. Matthew 13, 41. It's a, Jesus is explaining the parable of the wheats and the tares. He's actually explaining the three parables, the wheats and the tares, the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. But he's explaining it there in Matthew 13. And in 41, it has a real painful verse. It says, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. All those things that offend and those that practice lawlessness. So it would be best before we go forward to go back and see what he's talking about, and that would be to read there in the parable of the wheat and the tares. So I'll read that real quick, and then, um, and then we'll talk about it. Like I said, all of these parables go together. And if you read John MacArthur's commentary on that, he'll tell you that the leaven 
uh, comes out of that. But they're all three in order, and then Jesus breaks them down. So I say that they have, I'm not going to dicker with you on that. We're not going to really bear down on 11 necessarily. But they all have the same idea, and it's the pervasiveness of the kingdom of heaven, but it's also the wickedness that tries to rise up in the body of Christ. Verse 24, 13, 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and, and went his way. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us to then go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both the wheat, uh, sorry, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And we'll just let those other two lay for today. The parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, Jesus is warning his disciples. So the disciples ask him, what does this mean? Jesus is warning his disciples about the potential for harm that can rise up in the body of Christ. He says it's going to come from the influence of Satan. The kingdom of heaven is not going to be corrupted in heaven. It's uncorruptible. There's no sin there. There's no Satan there. There's no demonic realm there anymore. In the future, in the kingdom of heaven, in, in the future, in heaven... There's no influence of Satan like there is on earth. <laughs> However, in our realm, we have a different story. The bride of Christ, the church, is the wheat. He describes it as the wheat, the believers. It's the mustard tree that comes from this little tiny seed. And it says all the birds of the earth dwell in it. When you see that, the birds of the earth and the mustard seed one there, it's talking about the Gentile nations that come and dwell in this Jewish planted tree which is exactly what happened, about A.D. 300 or so. So a very Jewish faith became a Gentile faith, and in a sense it corrupted it. So what's going on here is the corrupting influences of Satan inject themselves into the kingdom of heaven through the work of the evil one. It says... In verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field, of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and he will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. So the parable describes the Christian church all throughout time. It's not just the Christian church today that's had issues. It's always been that way. There's always been tares that rose up in the midst of God's people. Paul warned about it in all the epistles. John warned about it in, in 2nd and 3rd John. Beware of this guy. Beware of that guy. He's going to come into your midst. The churches in, um, in Revelation, same thing. Beware of the Jezebel spirit. Beware of this. Beware of that. These people are going to rise up, these heretical 
uh, people are going to rise up in your midst. They're going to be very subtle. It's getting harder and harder as, as, as even us in my, in my lifetime, it gets harder to discern the wheat from the tares because we, Jesus' name is appropriated for any particular use that, that seems handy. Even, even atheists use his name to gain support for different things that they're trying to accomplish. If they don't like what they think Christianity teaches, they'll say, well, what would Jesus do? Jesus is love. Jesus would never say anything negative about this situation or that, that particular sin. So he's a very handy crutch for people to fall on to use, to misuse his name. So if God's people don't know who Christ is, they don't know him well, they can fall into the trap of false doctrines in their fellowship. All this kind of thing goes against the third commandment. And that is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's not just using God's name as a cuss word. We used to, as a kid, that's what I thought using his name in vain was. It's using his name, it's a, attaching God's name to something that's less than holy. Attaching his name to something worldly. Swearing in his name. I swear to God, I swear that I did such and such. That's why Jesus said, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be attaching God's name to worldly things. You don't have the power to change anything. Pete was talking this morning. He said, why are we worrying? You can worry all you want. You don't have the power through your worry to change the situation. Trying to make your little system, your little plan to fix the issue that's happening. You don't have the power in that. Why are you worrying? Why are you trying to attach God's name to the situation that you're in yourself? He's outside. His, his sovereignty is outside of the situation. He's not unaware of the situation. He's just outside of the situation. He can handle the situation. So it's not about using his name as his cuss word. And one thing, if I could warn you, because I've heard people do it, I've probably done it myself, and that is using G the, the name of God or the name of Jesus in a light way, like in a joke or a meme. People send me a meme, you know, with, with Jesus doing one thing or another, you know. And, and you know, they're like, ha-ha, this is so funny. Man, creator of the universe, be careful. Be careful in using the name of God for anything that's less than awesome. He is awesome. He alone is awesome. It's like I've told you before about the use of the word awesome. We attach it to petty things. Oh, kid hit a home run. Oh, that's awesome. It's not awesome. If the kid created the bat from nothing, that would be awesome. But to run around the bases, any monkey can do that. God alone is awesome. Be careful attaching earthly things, worldly things to the awesome God. And that's what we do. What about churches that use the name of Christ, yet teach things that are against his nature? What about churches that, that allow sexual immorality amongst their people, or they allow uh, you know, homosexuality in their fellowship, or, or those kind of things, and they try to overlook it or write it away or, or overspeak it in God's word? Is that taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain? Because it says the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I'd say it comes real close. God tells us in this parable right here, Jesus does, that all things that offend and all those who practice lawlessness will be cast into the furnace and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth and they'll be destroyed on that day. So believers, uh, let, me, let me back up. So as men are on earth, we tend to allow things in the kingdom of God, in God's church, 
in the body of Christ that will not be allowed into heaven. We can't help it. We're fallen people. We're not as observant as we should be. We're not aware as we should be. We're not keeping always on the alert and observing all things that take place with insider hearing. It's one of your 11 general orders. You should know that one. When you're standing post, you've got to know that one. That's right. Keep your eye on stuff. But we don't do that well. We, we allow things to come into our membership. We're like, ah, that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. You know, maybe we can handle that next time. Or, hey, you don't think we should talk to so-and-so about that? We, Jed and I talked about that. What are we going to do if, uh, if this or that situation, a homosexual couple comes to our church and they want to be married, a homosexual couple comes to our church and they want to serve from the front? Do we allow that to happen? It's allowing tears into the fellowship influence that would influence our young people and give them the sense that it would be okay to go against God's word in this thing rather than offend. But the Bible is very offensive. And it's very direct on all sin. It's very direct. So these offenses are going to be removed as well as these people who are offensive. Believers are to stand against the works of Satan. It says that this work, this tear planting, the tares are the sons of the the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Seems pretty obvious who planted the tares. Those that are not of Christ are of the world. Those that are not of Christ are influenced by the evil one. The evil one influences people and they can think that they're doing right or good. But there's only one definition of good. Jesus gives it to the man who says, good, good uh, rabbi, good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but my Father in heaven. Why doesn't Jesus allow goodness to be attached to him? Because he was in a body of a vile man. There's nothing good in man. Only God is good. Jesus points the man to God, the only one who is good. So we tend to fall into those things that are not good. So Jesus, I'm sorry, Satan is the one that sows these tares. And Satan's more likely, think about this, Satan's a lot more likely to be working in the body of Christ than he is on, say, in the red light district, right? I mean, those people have already got their, their hang-ups. He doesn't have to destroy them. They're already destroyed. They're destroyed by their own flesh or their own desires. It's the fallenness of man. He doesn't have to work extra hard to get people addicted to drugs or pornography or what. It's just what we are, what we desire in our natural state. He's got to work on God's people. He's got to cause confusion among God's people. And so that's what he does. He's most effective in a church where he can get people to slightly twist who it is that Christ is or who God is. I wrote some examples down. Uh, the Mormons think that Christ is Lucifer's brother and that he's the one, they both got two systems, they're going to figure out who's got the best system and we're doing Jesus' system now. And Lucifer's not real happy with that, so he's trying to weasel in on his system. Uh, the Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus is just like a higher chosen angel and that he's just one of many. Again, a system idea. Uh, the Muslims believe that he's a good prophet and in fact are against Christians in one, in one way because we don't treat our prophet better than we do. Uh, but again, they're wrong. And to many, he's just a good or a wise sage. We hear Buddhists say things like that, Taoists, whatever. You know, oh yeah, he's got good sayings. We hear people say it on, the, um, on I hear people say it on TV. People that are very anti-God, they like to use Jesus 
as the fallback of, well, Jesus would never do that. They don't ever go back to the part where Jesus was beating up folks and whipping them in the temple. They never, I mean, that's my favorite Sunday school story. If you get to do that on the Sabbath, that's a solid Sabbath. Whooping people, that's good action right there. The, the problem is, is that the tares look an awful lot like the wheat. The only problem is they're not producing any fruit. At the end, the, the tear, the actual animal there, the actual plant is called darnel. In the south, they call it darnel, but I think it's called darnel. Anyway, it just doesn't produce wheat kernels. It produces a weed that looks like wheat. And they've been growing in the church since time began. It's not a recent thing that the tares have really just sprouted up. You remember the Crusades? Where people under the name of Christ went and killed other people that didn't agree with them? Remember the Reformation? Where people, <laughs> when they got, you know, I mean, we like John Calvin. We like Martin Luther. We like John Knox. If you look at their lives, if you do not agree with them, they would send people to kill you. That's how serious they were. But it's, it's a little bit of confusion there can cause a lot of damage to the body of Christ. Let's see. Tares use the church as an excuse to go and take advantage of other people's. Hitler was a big, uh, I believe he was a Methodist. No, no, he really liked Martin Luther. That was his thing. And what he liked about Martin Luther was that uh, Luther went first to the Jews, and then the Jews rejected the message, the Reformed message. And so he's like, you know what? You guys are Christ killers. Hitler, not a Christian, obviously, but he liked that idea because it could turn people against the Jews. They're the Christ killers. The Romans were the Christ killers. The Jews were just like, go get them. It was the Romans that hung them on the cross. It was the Jews that lied about them. So the Gentiles are just as guilty for killing Christ as the Jews were, but he was able to use the name of Christ as a means to destroy other mankind. The devil... I, I tell you this and I tell you again, the devil does not care how men are destroyed. He just wants them destroyed. He doesn't care who destroys them. He doesn't care if they destroy each other. He doesn't care if God destroys them in their wrath. He doesn't care if he gets a part. He just wants to see man created in the image of God destroyed. That's all he cares about. And we need to get our mind around that and recognize the battle that we're in. It's a supernatural battle and it's much greater than we're aware of. We're not keeping our eyes on the presence like we should. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil in John 8, 44. They were teaching things about God that were not true, and Jesus said, that's not of God. That's of the devil. You're a tear. You think you're a wheat, but you're a tear. False religion does not acknowledge the father, creator, God, it doesn't acknowledge his son. It doesn't acknowledge the Messiah, the Messiah's ship. It doesn't acknowledge the Christ and the work of the cross. Um, it ignores or it describes away his miraculous work, the power of the Holy Spirit, or his commandments towards men. We only take the commandments that we want, and we discard the rest. Oh, those, those verses about homosexuality being wrong, that's, that's Old Testament. It doesn't apply to the New Testament. If it's sin, it's sin. It's always sin. But the, but the greatest sin we do is we don't do what Jesus told us to do, which is, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What are his commandments? Well, I go to the book and I find out that sin hasn't changed. And God's commandments haven't changed. 
So if I love him, if I'm of him, and I want to produce abundant fruit, then I need to be obedient to him. Am I wrong? Shaking your head back there. He's just watching. He's thinking about it. I don't believe I'm wrong. But you check the word yourself and make sure. Matthew 13, 36 through 43, it's pretty cut and dried how God's going to survey his people. He's not going to use other men to purify his body. I thought that was interesting. You remember Jesus saying in John that he, would not, he knew what men were made of so he would not commend himself to men. You can't trust men uh, to accurately purify the people. It says that the angels will purify the people. Why is that? Because angels are impartial to men. They serve the most high God and they serve him alone. They don't, they're not, uh, they're not uh, empathetic to men. They see this one, oh, this one's particularly cute. God told me to kill them all. I'm not going to kill this one. If you remember the Passover, the death angel that was sent, he killed until God told him to stop. If the blood wasn't on the doorpost, he killed. And that's just how it is. There was no mercy given to any that did not have blood on the doorpost. The angel does what he's assigned to do. There was other verses there. Uh, you could think about the four horsemen in Ezekiel versus the four, same four horsemen in Revelations. Some are told to stay. Some are told to go and reap the earth. They do what God tells them to do, and they don't stop till God tells them to stop. So before the return of the Son of Man, then, there's a refining that has to take place. It's a cooking down and a skimming off of the slag of the body of Christ, a purifying of the body of Christ, because only a purified people can enter the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom of heaven. Those that use the church as a crutch or, or they have this emotional Christianity that's up and down, depending on the... Um, I don't know, I don't even know how to say it, maybe the mood that they're in that day, they're not going to remain firm to the end. Because if you're having a good day, they're all about Christ. And if you're having a bad day, uh, they've completely forgotten Christ and they're back living in the old way. They don't know him and the power of his resurrection. So they use him as a part-time crutch, and when they do, they're going to be swept away in the judgment. Fear is what Jed said this morning. Fear is going to crush their faith. 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. The love of who? Who loves who? The fear that comes from not knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. The fear that comes from not being known by a sovereign God who, if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. You will have great fear if you don't know who your father is. And so these people will fall away. You've got to begin to understand the perfect love of Christ. The perfect love of Christ, whose blood was shed, that we could be the righteousness of Christ in him. We can stand before God without fear. I'm telling you, I'm warning you, I'm reminding you. If you stand before God and you don't have Christ's righteousness, righteousness on you, you will be more fearful than any experience you've had in this point, up to this point in your life. Standing on the tallest cliff, going off the highest roller coaster, jumping out of an airplane, whatever thing was particularly fearful for you, <clears throat> any of those things will be nothing compared to standing before this judge who has the power to cast you into the outer darkness. And you can 
recognize that uh, you can handle that today, seeking his truth through his word. We can be the, the clean, the Wheaties. We can be the Wheaties, the clean Wheaties now, and we won't have to fear that, the burning of the tares later. Eat your Wheaties. So before the, son of, the return of the Son of Man, this refining has to take place. And so we're unclean. As a church, we need to get clean. Part two. Persecution, adversity, or want are cleansers. They're not the kind we desire exactly, but they produce a clean church, a clean body. One that has a purity in following, a purity in motive. I was reading about, uh, oh man, I, I forgot his name, uh, in Sardis, the, the, uh, the 89-year-old man in Sardis. Polycarp. Polycarp. Reading about Polycarp and him you know, all they had to do was sprinkle this little bit of, um, of um, incense on this thing and say, Caesar is Lord. And then they, could, they, they were free to go for another year. They had to do it every year. And Polycarp said, 80 and 9 years, I've said that Jesus is Lord. And he's been good to me so far. And he just walks on by. They take him and burn him at the stake. And they had all these other believers that had been weak because they didn't, they thought, well, nobody will see me sprinkle or not sprinkle. I'll just sprinkle and, and nobody else will know. And those weak-willed believers in seeing Polycarp were ashamed. And they actually had a name for him um, in that time for being so wimpy and being afraid of the persecution to come. But they were afraid of the persecution because they didn't know who their king was. They didn't know the Messiah and the power of his name. And they didn't recognize that they were that this isn't the kingdom. This isn't heaven. This is the starting place. This isn't the ending place. And Polycarp's like, man, I made it to 89. What's the point? Kill me. God has always been good to me. Why would I change teams now at 89? We've got to get our minds right on that. We've got to get clean. Persecution causes cleanliness. Some things can be cleaned with, uh, anybody know what Simple Green is? It was big in the military. It was the wimpiest cleaner. They said it was all biodegradable. You couldn't clean nothing. That's a light, a light cleanser. The next level is uh, bleach or muriatic acid for a, a little bit tougher stain. But the most stubborn soils, like the hardened heart, only are cleaned by heat and pressure to remove the stain of, of sin. And God will do whatever his sovereign will dictates to draw people to himself for his kingdom. The days of soft scrub are over. I believe they're behind us as a nation. I think it's going to be, you're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to wake up. You're going to have to be obedient to his word. You're going to have to be loyal and steadfast to the end. I saw an Old Testament example that might help us here. I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it's kind of long. But I saw the, the, the mention of it. It was in Psalm 106, speaking about a man named Phineas. <clears throat> Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped, and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. If you want to read the story, it's there in Numbers 25, and it concludes in 31. In between, it talks about a census and some punishment that the people had to go under. But if I could, if I could tell you about it real quick. Um, so the Israelites had been traveling. They're getting towards the end of the thing there. And if you recall, Balaam was called to... Uh, by the Midianite kings, they asked Balaam to come and curse God's people. And Balaam 
tries, but God says, no, you can't curse them. So Balaam tells the kings of the Midianites, he said, if you want to take them down, take them down by their own lusts. He says, just introduce, they must have had some particularly beautiful women. He said, introduce your women to them. They'll fall to those women. They'll get into idol worship that way, <clears throat> and, um, and that'll be the end of them. And that's exactly what happened. The Midianite women went and tempted the men. The men failed because that's what men do. And they, they fell to these women. And it gets to a point where Moses is standing at the tabernacle, kneeling on his face, prostrate at the tabernacle, with other people that saw the falling away of the people, the tares in the midst of the wheat, were about to burn the whole thing down. And Moses and these people go, and they're repenting at the tabernacle. And the sin had gotten so bad amongst the people that one of the men, a guy named Zimri, takes his, his Midianite girlfriend, a girl named Cosby, takes her and dares to take her to the tabernacle in front of these people, a Midianite, one God told him not to have anything to do with. And this man, Phineas, he's the man. He picks up a javelin, chases dude down, javelins him, javelins his woman. And it says that God honors him uh, because of his zeal. Another excellent Sabbath day action right there. We could make a movie out of that and the whipping of the people in the temple, I'm telling you. It's good stuff. But here's what happened. He both commenced a plague and he ended the plague by his action. So he javelins these two jokers. And what happens is 24,000 people die of a terrible plague right then. But God stays his hand on the rest. They purify the body. They take 12,000 Israelites and they go against the Midianites. And if you read the numbers of what they rescued from the Midianites as far as total animals, total women and children, it was like, I'm going to give you a round figure of around 100,000 people that 12,000 people killed and did not have a single loss of life amongst the 12,000. Why? Because they had been purified already. God had done the refining through the work of Phineas. When Phineas was zealous for God's word, for the most high God, he actually gets this great honor said about him. I, I read it was, may the Lord say something similar about Dale someday and you as well. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. May that be said of you. But these people... These 12,000 had to be set apart for this victory. They had to be purified first. And, they, and tragically, 24,000 people had to die so that 12,000 could go and gain a victory because they were so corrupted. All the things that offended God had to be removed from his people as well as all the people that offend. That's what it says. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and all those who practice lawlessness. God blesses the obedience of his people, but he will severely discipline his people when they turn from him. So how can we regain the zeal of Phineas in a mustard tree church culture? Um, how, can we main, how can we maintain purity in a sin-cursed world? It's, it's hard. So here's the last one. So the first one was unclean, the next one was get clean, and the last one stay clean. 
Matthew 5, verse 6. This is how it works. This is the only way it works. I'm convinced by my own life and my own lifestyle. Uh, you know me as Dale now. You don't know me as what I was when I was young. That's all I can tell you. I don't want to expound on what I was when I was young. But I'm going to tell you that right here, the only cure for what ails mankind is this book. And if you want to be clean and you want to stay clean, then you've got to be in this book. You have to be in God's presence daily, and the easiest way to be in his presence is in this book. The best way that God speaks to man is through his word. That's the primary way. Does he speak through prayer? Yes. Can he come in a vision in the night? Yes. Can he come in a dream? Yes. Does he often? Doesn't seem to. But he comes every day in this book, if you'll just sit down and open it. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you want peace in your spirit in troubling times, you've got to change your focus from those things that are happening outside of the presence of God and reorient them to the things that are happening in his presence. And how can we find those things? They're right here in his book. The hunger, the hunger that, apparently, I'm not a, a Hebrew scholar by any stretch, or Greek scholar, just be Greek. But blessed are those who hunger. This word hunger is not, uh, you know, they call it hangry, you know, they got to give you a Snickers so you don't kill somebody at the job site. It's not that kind of hunger. It's a starving hunger that can't be satiated. You got a tapeworm. And it can't be satiated. You're starving, starving. It's ravenous hunger, like a lion fighting over a carcass um, because he's starving. It's the carcass or nothing. Um, it's a willingness to forsake any other thing until you have feasted on the Word of God every day. If you read in the Psalms, I was reading in, in Psalm uh, 119, how many times I read in the morning, again at night, seven times a day I search your Word. That's a lot. That's not two minutes of a devotional on your cell phone. That's not going to make it happen. you got to know his word. you got to have it. It's a dwelling on his word and wishing that you had more time in order to take advantage of it. It's listening to preaching in between so that you're hearing more word. It's being careful in what you listen to as too. You wanna, you're gobbling his word down. Be careful you're not taking in words from the tares. Know what you're listening to. If you know his word and you hear preaching from me or anyone else, you'll be able to identify when the guy says something that's not quite right. I heard a pastor, I highly respect the guy, and he said something about lying one time. He goes, well, there's some cases of lying that, that may be necessary, you know, if your life was in danger or something. I was, and I'm reading God's word. I don't see that. It says, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven a proud look, a lying tongue. A lying tongue. God hates a lying tongue. Don't lie. There's no reason for, well, what about Rahab? What about Rahab? God hates a lying tongue. I don't know how God uses people. He uses fallen people every day. He uses me. But he says he hates lying. So I'm not going to preach to you and tell you, oh, there's times you can lie. Go ahead and lie. I'm telling you, God hates lying. You stand in judgment on your own. Every person does. So if you want to lie, lie. But I'm telling you, God says he hates lying. 
So be honest. The point is, is that you got to know his word. If you dwell on his word, if you fill yourself with his word, you can lose this fear of death. This fear that so many people struggle with, I myself have struggled with it, we've all struggled with it, this fear of losing your salvation. I can go to 1 John 5.13, 5.25, right in there, that you may know that you have eternal life. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. My Father's greater. No one can snatch you out of my hand. My Father's greater than me. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. I'm unsnatchable. I, can, I don't have to worry anymore in fear of, of losing my salvation. If I know the word, I'm not going to fear the loss of my salvation. If I don't know the word, I'm going to fear those things. I'm going to go to those scriptures that says, not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll be like, I, I've said that before. I did that stuff. I, I, I prayed for people before. I Maybe I'm going to lose my salvation. No. He says, no one can snatch. If you're his, you're not being snatched out of his hand. But you can't know that if you don't know his word. Starving hunger for his word every day. Spend time in his word. The thirst right there is the same thing. It's not the desiring for a sip to take the edge off. It's a need for a drenching, an immersion of cool water. It's the, the westerns where the guy's staggering across the desert and they come to the, the water trough and the guy just falls in and is drinking horse water. It's starving for water. He can't get enough to quench his thirst. He's drinking it, drinking it. Rivers, how do you have rivers of living water pouring out of the innermost part of the man, out of the gut? How do you have that if there's no water being put in there? You've got to be filled with the water for water to be able to come out. If you want the Holy Spirit, if you want God's Word to be able to give an answer when you're asked a question, you got, it's got to go in there first before it can come out. And listening to another person tell it to you is not the same as digging it out yourself. In Psalm 42.1, as the deer panteth after the water brook, so my soul panteth after thee, O God. The deer, is this, it's a bigger picture than just the little, you know, the shady thing. And the deer's like sneaking up to the water, getting a little sip. This deer's been pursued. The killers are trying to kill the deer. The wolves are chasing the deer. The deer's been running. The deer's exhausted. And the deer finally gets to the brook. I, mean, I remember playing in basketball, and you're running, 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 running. Finally, you're just like, man, you're dying of thirst. And you go over there, and they hand you the squirt bottle. You're like, you want the whole thing. You can't get enough water. Coach is telling you to slow down so you don't get slow. The deer is run to death, and he gets to the water, and he buries his nose in the water, and he drinks and drinks and drinks and drinks, and he doesn't care if they kill me. If they kill me, they kill me. I don't care. I'm so thirsty. Do you, could you say that about yourself, that you have that desire for the living water or that you have that desire for the bread of life? Because if you don't, you need to analyze yourself and see what you are. Make your calling and election sure, the Bible says. Know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, Philippians. If by any means. If I'm starving for the word, I'm, I'm not starving for a devotion about the word. I want God to speak to me. 
And he can only speak to me through his word if I read his word. I don't want to hear what John MacArthur or John Piper or whatever, John Adams, I don't care what they have to say about God's word. I want to know what God's word says to me. And the only way I can know that is to be in his word every day as the deer panteth after the water brooks. So my soul panteth after thee, O God. I kept going on about the Psalms and I'm trying to encourage you. I don't, you know, if you think I'm a bully, too bad. Read the Psalms. It's going to help you. It's going to encourage you. It's going to build you up. And you're going to be satiated. You're going to be filled. And you're going to have the power to make it through the week. You're going to have the energy to answer those that would blaspheme God's name publicly. You're going to have the, the words to answer the responses of those that mock God in our culture. They don't, it's not just out there, people. It's in our town. I hear, it, I hear people say stuff all the time, and they make little jokes about God and and whatever, just like it says in Peter in the last days, they're going to say, where's this God you guys have been praying to? Where's he at? He's real. He exists. If you don't know him, today's the day. Because you won't stand before his judgment. Make sure that you have Christ's righteousness on you. And if you don't hunger and thirst for this righteousness, then you need to check yourself and ensure that Jesus Christ is in fact your Messiah. Many times, we think, well, the Bible's boring or it's hard to understand or whatever, and we haven't spent enough time in it. Anything that's good takes effort, and it's always hard. Anything that's good. Anybody can ride a tube behind a boat. I've said this before. But to water ski, that's a lot more fun. To do the kneeboarding and all that other kind of thing, that's a lot more fun. But those take effort. Those take building up muscle. Those take skill. Any monkey can ride an a, a, a inner tube. It takes skill to do the athletic things. Any kid can hit a ball off of a t-ball stand. But it takes skill to play in the major leagues. It takes years of training and practice and all those things, batting and pitching and all the different aspects of the game. It takes time. Time spent in the Word is not wasted time. Ben Franklin says time spent sharpening the axe is not wasted time. Don't get to the tree and your axe is dull. You're going to be sharpening it there instead or working twice as hard. Learn the Word now while it's still easy. If I could encourage you in anything, it would be this to, like I said, to just get in the Psalms and begin reading in that. Read through the Bible this year. Get your focus back on the presence of God and all these things the, the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace if we can just get our eyes upon Jesus. We've got to get our focus right. This morning I want to offer you the opportunity for prayer. I want to offer you the opportunity of the, of the Messiah where he says that he stands at the door and knocks. If anyone hears his voice he will, and opens the door, he will enter in and sup with them. But you've got to open the door. It's really easy once we get done with this time and you heard something, maybe it convicted you, maybe it didn't. I know there's better preachers out there. I know there's better storytellers. But I'm telling you that the message that God has sent with me today is for you, and it's this, that if you die without Christ, you'll be cast into outer darkness and you'll be alone forever. But if you accept Christ on that day when you die, and you will, he will say, enter in, thou good and faithful servant, and that's all I can tell you. It's a decision every person has to make for themselves. And weak-willed believers, wishy-washy believers, are really going to struggle in hard times. So I pray that while it's still called today, that you'll take the time to study God's Word and get to know Him and become a lover of Him.
Phineas, the son of Eleazar, has turned his back, turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them. Therefore, behold, I will give him my covenant of peace. May that be said of you today. Come today and drink from the living water if you would. Father, this morning, Lord, we give you all glory and honor and praise. We know that you alone are worthy to be praised, that you are the sovereign creator over all things, that without you, nothing was made that has been made. Father, we ask your forgiveness now for our, our wickedness and our accepting of the things of the world within our midst. Father, we, we pray for our kids that have, that have seen us be two different people, one person at home and one person at church. We pray for our kids that they could overlook our hypocrisy and they could see their need for a Savior above all else. Lord, I pray for our kids as well as they've seen us have things that were greater interest to us than your word or your presence. Father, I pray that before it's too late, Lord, that they'll see the change in our spirit, that we recognize our, our fallenness and our sinfulness and how we've gotten away from you, Lord, and that, and that you, would, you would still use us, Lord. Use us in our families first, Lord, I pray. Father, I pray for our county. I pray for our country. I pray for those in leadership over us, Lord, that they would repent while there's still time. I pray that your hand would not be removed fully from our country, Lord, that you would still bless America as you, as you once did. But even if not, I pray that we remain loyal to the end, Lord. I thank you for these that have come, Lord. I pray that they be encouraged today to read your word, study your word, and desire you more and more each day. And I pray for those that may not yet know you, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. And they would seek your face while you can still be found. Thank you, Lord, for all these good things you provided for us. Thank you for the meal that was provided for us today, the beautiful snow. Um, uh, the, the power of your creation is, is wonderful. Thank you for all your goodness. Thank you for the hands that prepared the meal. In Jesus' name, amen.